Our food and energy bills are soaring, driving up inflation to a 45-year high. And with energy bills high at the list of concerns, we ask, where can we find reliable, affordable sources of energy? Sources of fuel that aren't vulnerable to local or global conflict. Welcome to Committee Corridor. In this series, we're looking at the cost of living crisis. And in this episode, we're looking at the UK's energy security. I'm Darren Jones, and I chair the Commons Business, Energy and Industrial Strategies Select Committee. Select committees are cross-party groups of members of parliament who swap opposition for collaboration. We pick the issues, ask the questions, and publish reports. There are 20 select committees reflecting government departments. Today, we'll hear from two that are investigating alternative ways to power the UK. Greg Clark chairs the Science and Technology Committee. He's the Conservative MP for Tunbridge Wells. Anna McMorrin is the Labour MP for Cardiff North. She's a member of the Environmental Audit Committee. But first, the conflict in Ukraine created a profound shock to our energy supplies. It has driven up prices, putting people into fuel poverty, and it's brought the UK's energy production into sharp focus. It's a long time since we were energy independent, but we can't go back to the days of coal fields, oil, and natural gas. So where do we look and what can we do? Dr. Simon Evans works for Carbon Brief, a leading website covering climate science, climate and energy policy. It has won awards for its clear content, explainers, analysis and fact checks. And that's what we're after today. Simon, welcome to Committee Corridor. So Simon, there's been a lot of discussion recently about the price of people's energy bills, about things like net zero, but also we've been talking a lot more recently about energy security as well. I just wonder if you could explain what what do we mean by energy security? Yeah, thanks, Darren. So, I mean, energy security, in a nutshell, this is about making sure that when you switch the lights on, the lights do actually come on. And when you go to fill your car up with petrol, you don't have to queue. You can actually do that. That's it, basically. And, you know, obviously, you know, recent events with Russia's invasion of Ukraine have really put the spotlight on how essential it is for for, for all countries to maintain energy security. People understand, I think, that energy prices are high at the moment, but why would we run out of energy? Why would we not have enough to keep the lights on? You know, fundamentally, what's happened is that, that Russia's stopped selling gas to Europe. Basically, it started cutting supplies to Europe last autumn, well ahead of its invasion of Ukraine. A lot of people don't appreciate that. Also, Gazprom, one of the state-owned energy giants in, in Russia, operates, or I should say formally operated, a large amount of gas storage sites in Germany. And they systematically ran down the storage at those sites, leaving Europe with less gas stored going into last winter. And so what happened after Russia invaded Ukraine in February of this year, and they started cutting their supplies to Europe in a really big way. And, you know, just to put in in perspective, we're now down about 80% in terms of the amount of gas that Russia supplies to Europe compared to, to normal levels. And, you know, Russia's the world's biggest fossil fuel exporter, right? So this is this is big, big stuff. And so as a result of that, prices have gone through the roof. There is, you know, there's genuine concern about the actual volume of, of energy available, you know, because this huge supplier of, of gas has gone away. 
And we use quite a lot of gas to produce electricity, don't we, in uh, gas-fueled power stations, which is why we worry about fossil fuels and our electricity. But the energy regulator, Ofgem, and the government have been working over the last couple of months to try to anticipate whether we really will run out of electricity this winter. Other than gas, what is it that the government might be worried about in terms of our supply of electricity? So just to come back on that, you know, the UK is almost uniquely exposed to the the current energy crisis, which is primarily about gas, although prices for coal and oil have also been very high. And the reason that we're we're quite exposed to high gas prices is that we get quite a high proportion of our electricity from gas-fired power stations, about 40% of the total. And in addition to that, 85% of our homes are heated with gas boilers. You know, Both of those figures are much higher than, than in many other European countries. And, and furthermore, we have some of the leakiest homes in Europe, so some of the least energy efficient. Coming back to your question, you know, where else are we getting our, our electricity from? So one of the areas where there might be some concerns is electricity imports. So we import significant quantities of electricity from on the continent, primarily France, but also Belgium and the Netherlands. Given that this is, you know, particularly a European energy crisis, if gas supplies were to run low across the continent for whatever reason, a cold snap, a complete shut off of supplies from Russia, for example, then there's a question mark over whether we would continue to receive those electricity imports fr- from those countries. And uh, there's been some suggestion that the energy crisis as we now refer to it, which people have really been experiencing now for maybe a year or so, could go on until the end of the decade. I mean, do do you agree with that? So obviously, you know, it's very hard to predict the future. Energy prices are, are no different in that regard. But it is true to say that the current forecasts suggest gas prices are going to remain much higher than we expected a year ago for much of the rest of the decade. I mean, that's what, you know, the OBR has said. That's what energy consultancies are saying. That's what the, the Climate Change Committee that advises the government is saying. So yes, that, that does seem to be the expectation. And so if we rely a lot on gas for electricity and importing electricity from Europe, and both of those are potentially at risk or just very expensive, let's take a look at what we actually have. What's the GB energy that we have here in Great Britain. We're doing quite a lot for offshore wind. So wind turbines out in the North Sea and elsewhere, everyone seems to think that's a good thing. But onshore wind has been a problem for a while. The government have been flip-flopping, I think, between supporting it and not supporting it. What's the latest position from the government in terms of supporting wind turbines on land? So just to to set things out, in terms of the UK's electricity supplies, it's roughly 40% gas, 40% renewables, which is primarily wind and solar, um, and also some bioenergy, and sort of 15% nuclear and then imports. In terms of the the government position on onshore wind, you know, I have to say I, I haven't really been able to keep up with the very latest on this. You know, at one point it did seem like they were going to effectively level the playing field in planning terms for onshore wind in England. And now it seems that they may not do that. Onshore wind and solar are, are effectively the cheapest and quickest ways to get new electricity supplies in the UK, but in most countries around the world. And so the fact that there is a you know de facto ban on new onshore wind farms in England is perplexing, you might say. Any idea why? Why didn't they like them? So, I mean, this it's a very strange one, really, because if you look at all of the polling, onshore wind is popular, you know, very popular, sort of 80% popularity amongst the general public. It's popular amongst people that live near wind, wind farms. It's popular amongst 
Red Bull voters. It's popular amongst Tory voters. It's popular again amongst Labour and Green voters, and you know Lib Dems too. Basically, everyone likes onshore wind farms, but there is this this kind of very vocal uh, minority of people who are very opposed. I guess you know it's not totally clear, but primarily we, we kind of surmise on aesthetic grounds they don't like the way they look. And unfortunately, you know, quite a large number of those people occupy positions of power, whether that's in in media, editing newspapers, or whether that's in government. Well, it might be that the government has little choice, right? Because you've already set out that you know forty percent gas for our electricity, forty percent renewables, you know, wind and solar, the rest from nuclear and imports. But on nuclear, most of our nuclear power stations are, are pretty old and end of life now. We have a new nuclear power station, Hinkley Point C, being built down in Somerset, but it's it's very delayed. The government's trying to get the money to add up to pay for another new nuclear power station called Sizewell C. If the government can't get all the cash in to pay for Sizewell C, what, what can it do? I mean, it's going to have to do more more wind or just rely on gas, isn't it? So, I mean, let's clear, clear out one thing to start with. It would be possible for the UK to meet its electricity needs and meet its net zero target without building Sizewell C. It's a question of choices and um, you know priorities and costs. So there's certainly a possibility to do without Sizewell C. It isn't a must-have from that point of view. Having said that, you know the, the rates of growth that are needed for for renewables to meet our net zero target, and indeed to meet the government's target of you know fully decarbonising the electricity sector by 2035. That's a you know pretty staggering rate of growth. You know we've seen massive growth in wind and solar over the last decade, but that's you know that's going to need to accelerate from now, and particularly so if if we're re- relying more heavily on wind and solar. Just just on the the other point that people often raise is you know what do you do when the sun sets at night, which you know it does do every night, but also obviously we do you know we do experience periods of you know up to two or three weeks sometimes, particularly in winter where where it's not very windy. And the question is, how do you keep the lights on in those periods? And you know, the answer is that you have to have a mixture of options. Batteries aren't the answer because you know they're, they're great for within day and you know perhaps for balancing across a few days. But the amount of energy that you would need to store to meet supplies for several weeks is too large to be met by batteries. That there are alternative longer-term energy storage options such as compressed air, which is obviously you know kind of cheaper than than lithium-ion batteries. But we will also likely need things like hydrogen-fired power stations or perhaps gas-fired power stations with carbon capture and storage. Let's just talk a little bit about hydrogen because my select committee got in a bit of bother a few months ago for saying that we weren't entirely convinced of the evidence that they made about hydrogen being the easy answer for replacing gas for our boilers, for heating our homes. But in other sectors, it seems to be very promising. So for electricity purposes, just explain to listeners what that means. So how, did the, how does the wind turbine, the hydrogen and the demand all kind of fit together? What happens in real life? Yeah, so obviously, when it's windy, you generate electricity from wind farms. And when it isn't windy, you don't. And so, you know, the, the output goes up and down, and that doesn't necessarily match up well with when we actually need the need that power. So the idea with hydrogen is that when there's an excess of, of electricity generation from wind farms, you could be using that to run electrolyzers, which people might remember from their school chemistry classes, you can, you can use. So in this case, you're running electricity through water and splitting out the hydrogen and the oxygen that makes up that water. You can then store hydrogen 
like we store gas today. And similarly, you can you can use that hydrogen to generate electricity in a gas turbine. Again, much like we use you know methane gas today. I mean, that all sounds very sensible. Why, why are we not doing it already? What's what's holding us back? At the moment, there effectively isn't any production of of clean hydrogen, hydrogen with you know low carbon emissions. Effectively, all of the hydrogen currently in use today is made by something called steam methane reformation, where you take natural gas, methane, and you turn it into hydrogen. And that comes with quite high carbon emissions. If we want to use hydrogen as part of the answer to net zero, then we need to get it from clean sources. So you either need to add carbon capture and storage to your gas production route, or you need to use electrolyzers based on clean electricity. Okay. Now carbon capture. So this, again, let's just try to paint a picture here. So you've got a hydrogen production plant. Uh, You've got water, you've got your process to try and get hydrogen out of it and you use gas to heat it up presumably but in doing so you produce carbon dioxide emissions and the idea is you can capture those carbon dioxide emissions before they escape into the air and make global warming worse and then pipe them somewhere probably under the north sea so that they don't escape is that right yeah that's it exactly now is there any working example of a carbon capture plant in the UK at the moment? So there are kind of pilot scales, so very, very small carbon capture examples. I, you know, I believe Drax, the former coal power station in, in Yorkshire, is piloting carbon capture with its bioenergy power plant. But yeah, th- these things don't really exist in, you know, in, a, in a major way anywhere in the world. You know, there are a number of, of small demonstration plants around the world. But you know, we're talking perhaps 40 working plants and if you know if we're serious about carbon capture and storage being part of the solution to net zero then you know that we need to scale that up extremely quickly yeah we probably need to see something working right so that we can <laughs> we can rely on it because all of this we obviously want the electricity to work when people switch the lights on and they're then be able to heat their homes and to afford their bills but this whole discussion is important because we also need to get to net zero and tackle climate change and the government strangely thought that expanding the amount of licenses for drilling oil and gas in the north sea was good for energy security, good for energy prices, and good for climate change. What's your, uh, if you had to mark their exam answer there, how would you grade them on the answers about it being good for energy security, good for energy prices, and good for climate change? So, I mean, it's quite difficult to make those answers stack up, to be completely honest. Let's take them one by one. In terms of energy security, you know, we're facing an acute global energy crisis today. We, you know, we've been in that crisis um, for the last year. You know, this winter and next winter in particular are going to be the most acute phases of that crisis. New oil and gas licenses will make absolutely zero difference to that acute phase of the crisis. The North Sea Transition Authority, formerly the Oil and Gas Authority, which re- regulates North Sea oil and gas production, ha- has figures suggesting that from, from the granting of a license to the production of oil or gas, takes on average 28 years. In saying they're going to issue these new licenses, so, you know, they've suggested perhaps it might be five or six years for new production to come on stream. But even five or six years, to be clear, does absolutely nothing for, for us in this acute phase of the energy crisis. So you know, that, that's pretty much an F, I guess. In terms of energy prices, you know, the UK operates in a global market, particularly for oil, but also for gas. You know, increasingly, we're seeing a global trade in, in gas via liquefied natural gas ships and so the idea that the UK is a you know medium sized but ultimately quite small global producer of oil and gas could 
have a major impact on on those global markets it's just not very likely so so it's not really going you know it's not going to do anything for people's bills and certainly not as i said in in the in the short term so in terms of climate change the government's making this pretty strained argument that new oil and gas licenses is somehow good for climate change. Just to be clear about what they're they're saying, they're saying that North Sea oil and gas production has relatively low emissions in the production phase. So that's you know the emissions associated with getting this oil and gas out of the ground and to the consumer. That may be true, but overwhelmingly the emissions relating to oil and gas come when you burn them and those are the same whether they're you know UK oil and gas or coming from elsewhere and um, and fundamentally if if you open up new oil and gas supplies unless we're displacing oil and gas supplies somewhere else then we're simply increasing the you know the global supply of oil and gas and therefore we're increasing global emissions you can add on to that you know the international energy agency in its net zero report published last year basically said that if the world gets on a pathway to 1.5 degrees, which the UK government says it wants to do, and governments around the world say they want to do, then we actually don't need new oil and gas supplies. They're, they're actually, we don't need the energy that would come from those. We have already plentiful oil and gas supplies around the world that would be more than enough to meet our needs. Well, that's not a very good set of grades for the government. Why do you think they're doing it then? Well, you know, ultimately, this, you know, this is why climate change is such a hard problem to, to solve. For narrow uh, kind of national interests, you know, the government earns tax revenues from the North Sea. They're increasing their revenues from the North Sea by imposing this you know, energy profits levy, which is going to last a number of years. And so for UK PLC, it, it might be a good thing. But if every single country around the world that produces oil and gas took the same attitude, then, you know, we're not going to be getting very far in terms of tackling climate change. We've, we're running out of time, unfortunately, Simon, but, but just very briefly on heating the big debate, of course, is whether hydrogen is the easy answer to decarbonise heating or whether we need to use electricity-powered heating, such as heat pumps. What, what do you think the answer is? So if you look at all of the major energy studies, BP does an outlook at how we're going to get to net zero. They didn't include hydrogen for heat. The IEA didn't include hydrogen for heat. A review of 32 independent energy studies found not much hydrogen for heat. And, and yet, despite that, the government is committed to exploring it and not deciding whether to use hydrogen for heat until 2026. Securing the UK's energy supply has to be a top priority for government. I'm joined now by two MPs whose committees are looking into ways of doing just that. Greg Clark chairs the Science and Technology Committee. They've been examining the government's approach to developing new nuclear power. They've also looked at the role of hydrogen in achieving net zero. Anna McMorrin is the Labour MP for Cardiff North. She's a member of the Environmental Audit Committee. They've been examining the government's approach to leaving fossil fuels behind and securing the UK's energy supplies. They've also been exploring different technological innovations, such as geothermal technologies. Welcome both. So Anna McMorrin, you've been looking on the Environmental Audit Committee at the phasing out of fossil fuels from our energy supply here in the UK. And we've heard already on this podcast, we're down about 80% in terms of the amount of gas supplies to Europe compared to normal levels because of sanctions on Russia. Do you think that that's just going to speed up the transition across the European continent to get off of gas? Or do you think it's going to cause us some major problems this winter or next winter? I think it's already causing us major problems and we're already seeing a huge hike in energy bills right across Europe, but 
especially in this country, because what hasn't happened over the last 12 years is that we haven't had that investment, that proper investment in green renewable energy to make sure that we are weaned off fossil fuels, but also external supply and and supply from Russia. I hope that this means that we are going to step up a little quicker with this government, but the recent approval for, for more than 100 licenses for new fossil fuels in the North Sea is not the way to go. People are scared and constituents are telling me how scared they are. Um, Not only are we facing a hike in energy bills, but we're facing a huge hike in mortgages and inflation. It is not the solution to increase our dependency on fossil fuels. We need to be increasing dependency on and, and increasing investment on renewable energy. We need to be stepping up right now to make sure we don't have that dependency on Russia or any other external environments and political whims and conflict. So the government would say that if you're going to try and wean yourself off of Russian fossil fuels or indeed fossil fuels from other countries where there's political instability, that the best thing to do is to get as much oil and gas as possible out of the North Sea, homegrown oil and gas. You've already said you disagree with the extension of licenses. Do you take the government argument in any way about homegrown oil and gas? Is it as easy as you suggest in just terms of rolling out renewables? Yeah, and when I I asked this to Graham Stewart on the committee, that's the exact answer he gave. But, you know, I don't see that increasing dependency on fossil fuels is the way forward. What we need is is huge investment in renewable energy. Uh, That needs to be absolutely stepped up, not only renewable energy, but also energy efficiency, which is one of the quickest and easiest ways to prevent more dependency on energy. There's an opportunity as well. I've just got back from COP27. The overwhelming conversation there is about how Climate change needs to be that opportunity. And Greg Clark, the government's energy security strategy emphasised, in the government's view, the important role that nuclear power will play in weaning us off of fossil fuels, recognising that a lot of our power comes from gas-fired power stations. Um, What have you been hearing about the UK's ability to deliver additional nuclear power in your inquiry so far? Well, we're in the early stages of our inquiry, but I think what has emerged from that very clearly already is a degree of scepticism that we can meet the government's ambition for one nuclear reactor per year being commissioned. Uh, And in fact, the National Infrastructure Commission, in evidence to us, are fully supportive of another big nuclear power station after Hinkley, which is obviously still under construction. Sizewell would be the next one. They think that that should be approved during this parliament. But some of the additional options, like small modular reactors, they think it would be wrong to rely on that to meet either our energy needs or indeed our climate requirements, because that is too uncertain. And nuclear, as everyone knows, has a, I'm afraid, a track record of being delayed and uncertain in terms of its timing. So the problem we have, basically, we've got big nuclear and small nuclear, don't we? Big nuclear like Hinkley Point C and the proposal for Sizewell C, big, very long-term, very expensive projects to deliver. And the idea that we might have small nuclear or small modular reactors that are cheaper and quicker to install in different parts of the country. But in terms of the investment case, presumably if small nuclear is going to happen, the government's going to have to buy some so that we can build them and plug them in. And that would divert money from perhaps Sizewell C. 
Well, uh, you're absolutely right that everyone uh, thinks and assumes that if if we're going to develop small modular reactors, small uh, nuclear in this country, it's inconceivable that we would do it without the government being a customer for it. That there are aspirations that this should be an export industry, but if your if your own system, if your own government doesn't buy it, then that's not a terribly good look. It's not uh, much of an endorsement. So you're right, Darren, that it is, I think, very clearly accepted that if this is to work, then we're going to have to buy it and to to deploy it. Now, whether that comes at the expense of big nuclear, th- that is a moot point. We have to secure our energy supplies at an affordable price, especially given what, what we've discovered in the behavior of Russia. We need to have security and resilience. So it's not necessarily the case that we should just regard nuclear as a single pot. I mean, the truth is that the characteristics of small reactors may be very different from those of the very large-scale reactors. And that is one of the things that our inquiry will be looking in more detail at. Presumably, you've had some written evidence at this stage from some stakeholders who say, we don't actually need Sizewell C, the amount of money that it takes to build Sizewell C, if that was invested in renewables or grid upgrades or storage, we would be able to achieve the same outcome. Have you have you taken an early view on that or are you waiting until you've heard all of the evidence? We're going to wait until we've heard all, all the evidence. And so we have had people expressing that view, uh, academics and certain environmental groups, as well as um, commercial businesses invested in renewables, uh, as one might expect. But equally, we have heard not just from those with a a stake in this, that's to say the EDF and some of the companies that supply services to them. The National Infrastructure Commission uh, have been very clear in advance and, and have been with us that they do think that it is necessary for the purposes of resilience to have two new nuclear power stations within the the next few years. So we do have conflicting evidence. And uh, as you will know, as a veteran of the committee that I now chair and as a chair in your own right, uh, we will have to to weigh that up uh, when we we finish our inquiry, when we finish the oral uh, evidence sessions of our inquiry. And Anna McMorrin, I don't know if you do share the view about whether we need size whilst the or not, but if you don't have that additional nuclear power on the system and you're trying to reduce gas, the only place you can really go is really ramping up renewables. And you've been looking on the Environmental Audit Committee um, at the role of onshore solar energy. I suppose in people's minds, they think about a big nuclear power station, and then they think about some small solar panels, and they think they're probably not comparable. Uh, could you not have additional nuclear and enhanced solar, or do you, do you need both? What, what do you think? I, mean, I think there needs to be a combination, a mix of energy. So I think we do need some nuclear power, but we've not seen that investment to date. And a nuclear power station takes a long time to build. It's not overnight. So this is not a quick fix solution. And the new nuclear power stations are a lot cleaner. The issue, of course, is what to do with the waste. The last Labour government gave the go-ahead for new sites in 2009. These haven't yet got up and running. It's been thrown into disarray by by China having a, a vested interest in in them as well. So that's thrown in the security aspects. So we haven't seen the leadership that we need to get that good mix of renewable and and onshore, which is severely lacking. 
as well as nuclear. I think, uh, Greg, and for listeners, I'm sure they know Greg, but Greg, you were the business secretary between 2016 and 2019. So I, I got the message there. You were eager to respond to one of Anna's points. So go for it. Well, actually, to uh, to to add to it, and, and it's it's more in my in my current role as chair of the Science and Technology Committee. It's one of the the fascinating pieces of evidence that we had relates to this point that Anna mentioned about nuclear waste. And of course, in my mind, this has always been one of the big worries. You know, how much does it cost to dispose safely or store uh, nuclear waste? And the point was made that. I thought was quite striking in one of our evidence sessions that for new nuclear, the incremental cost of storing waste is not so prohibitive. It's not linear because basically once you've got nuclear waste that needs to be stored, and we do have an awful lot of it, then the very fact of having it actually and historically means that you have to have sites that need to be secure, you need to have facilities. So adding a bit more to it is actually not repeating the costs in the same way, which I thought was a really valuable insight into the, the future economics of nuclear that I felt was a good illustration of, of how taking evidence from experts actually can bring an insight that may have been well known in the nuclear world, but as a policy maker, I, I, that hadn't been expressed so clearly before. And certainly as part of our decarbonizing the power sector inquiry on the on the business committee, we'll be having a, a little look at nuclear, not in the same depth as you on the Science and Technology Committee, Greg. But um, one of the concerns that's come up for us is also the cost of delivering the infrastructure because lots of countries are now interested in building nuclear power stations in Europe, in Asia, in America, and elsewhere. But the supply of enriched uranium fuel for those nuclear power stations is pretty limited and also in some countries where there is political risk. So the price of powering these stations seems to be pretty pretty risky or indeed higher than it was before. And so these business cases often change with time. And when you're trying to make an investment for such a long period of time, that makes it very difficult, as I'm sure you experienced when you were a minister, Greg. Well, that's exactly right. And, and it, it is why you have to, to look at all the different angles and the, the cost and the, the availability of fuel is one of those. And it's one of the reasons why, as a minister, I was the minister responsible for, for agreeing the Hinkley Point C uh, deal. The fact that the, the risk there is entirely with EDF, the operator of the of uh, the site. I was pretty pleased with that. It let me sleep more comfortably in my bed because whether it's construction cost uh, or whether it's the operating cost, the fact that it didn't fall incrementally to the UK taxpayer or the UK bill payer was a source of some relief. Now, obviously, the debate is that the price for that is in the, the strike price that was agreed. One of the things that I think we'll all need to consider if we're moving to a new model, the so-called RAB model, a regulatory asset base model, in which the either the taxpayer or the bill payer would take on some of the risk, then that risk needs to be quantified because it can be quite significant. And doesn't this sentiment, Morin, actually help make the case for renewables? Are, are the public presumably are more comfortable with taking on financial risk around wind turbines and solar panels. Why do you think here in Westminster, there's always such a debate about the public not liking wind turbines or solar panels when actually the evidence suggests otherwise? I mean, I think there has been some controversy around onshore wind and local communities. There's quite a lot of work that has to be done around the planning system around that in Wales. And when I worked as a special advisor on energy in, in Wales, we had, and we still do, have specific 
areas set out within Planning Policy Wales where onshore wind is naturally going to be allowed. So that was a main strategic element of ensuring that we got more onshore wind and also made sure that local communities benefited from it, not just through a bigger community centre or or such like, but actually benefiting, whether that's jobs, whether that's cheaper energy. And I think that's got to be the way forward for onshore. But there's the, it's got to be a mix. There's got to be a mix of renewables, as well as making sure that all of our homes are energy efficient. And that's going to be the quick fix that can, I mean, it's not quick, but none of this is quick, but that is going to be a solution to making sure that we don't draw down on the energy, the energy demands and that we can make sure that we have the the supply that is needed for every single home and that every single home is warm. And just moving to a a related but slightly different issue on the, on the business committee, we've been tasked by government to scrutinise its use of new national security powers, which are administered through the business department. Um, and Greg Clark, you mentioned the signing off of Hinkley Point C when, when you were Secretary of State. Of course, there's a concern now about the role of Chinese money or the Chinese state in energy infrastructure. Of course, we're all trying to decouple our energy supplies from Russia now. I'm sure there'll be other examples in the future. Do you think we're set up both as a UK, but also in partnership with our allies, to really be able to finance and deliver the amount of energy infrastructure that we need that does decouple it for those national security concerns from countries that we've previously worked with. Well, you're absolutely right, Darren, that the the very biggest energy projects, specifically nuclear energy projects, have proved in recent years, in the last 10 years uh, or so, not to be commercially financeable without a government guarantee. And EDF, uh, which is a commercial company, was owned by the uh, the French government and now even more so um, since the the crisis they've uh, uh, they've taken it over in effect and so that is a dilemma we had two Japanese firms Hitachi and Toshiba who were more or less pure private sector plays but the scale of the investments you know tens of billions of pounds the shareholders felt that they couldn't take that on the balance sheet so we've had to to go to to sovereigns. Now, we have our own ability to to back that, and that's what the government is looking at through the regulatory asset base. But there are other sovereigns that, that may be willing to invest. In the case of China, I think it's fair to say at the time of agreeing the investment uh, in Hinkley Point C, relations were probably less strained than they were at the, the moment. The the doctrine of the government. You might remember Xi Jinping came and enjoyed a, a pint of beer with uh, David Cameron uh, in the pub outside Chequers. That's things are not so cordial these days. But even then, the investment was limited to be, in effect, a financial investment, a portfolio investment. They're, they're not involved in the construction of the, the plant. And obviously, the, the security assessment needs to be very expert and very thorough and decisive at, at every point. Sorry, Anna McMurrin, you wanted to say something? Yeah, I was, well, I was just going to come in to say, you know, what you're describing there, Greg, is the need for an energy company, a national energy company. Out of, I think, 10 countries in the world leading the clean energy transition, it's only the UK that doesn't have a public generation company. So that would allow that investment in onshore, offshore, solar, nuclear companies, as you say, like EDF or like Vattenfall, 
they are public companies. I don't think the vehicle, personally, I don't think the vehicle is the the principal problem. I think it's the financing of it. You can have guarantees that are given from the public balance sheet to to private companies. Other countries like France do it through, in effect, a state-owned company. But it comes down to who is going to take the risk onto the uh, onto the balance sheet, and are you prepared, as a country and as an economy, to take on those big risky investments. But I think there's opportunity there. So you can, by having that state-owned or or nationally owned company, which can be made up of private enterprises and private funding, you can then have that leadership on creating skills, creating those jobs, making sure that you are energy independent. I think it gives far more ownership over a government to make sure that you have the credibility, but you also have that energy secure energy supply. Well, I would say, you're right about the need to create jobs and skills. I think that what's been done in Hinkley, for example, by an independent, independent, the UK government company, in terms of creating skills and generating apprenticeships, has been pretty commendable. And beyond nuclear, looking around the the country at offshore wind, for example, one of the things that I had the pleasure of doing as Secretary of State was to open the uh, the Siemens uh, turbine factory in Hull. And there I, I met some of the, the young people being trained, having previously had pretty low paid jobs, um, getting much higher paid ones. I think there are different ways to, to do it. But the key thing is that we need to have those skills as well as those investments. And actually in Britain, we don't have anywhere making solar panels anymore. Everything has to be imported. There are a lot of opportunities for homegrown companies here to create those jobs. Well, that, well that's, that gets us on to industrial strategy, which um, is um, uh, is obviously in the title of, uh, of Darren's committee. And one of the things that I do look back with pride on is the development of the offshore wind industry, which was very strategic. The government made a commitment that we were going to, through the contracts of difference, have and incentivize and subsidize uh, the development of an offshore wind industry and to try to capture the supply chain here when we'd missed the boat with the onshore wind industry, whereas you remember most of the most of the equipment was manufactured in Denmark or Germany that was coming here. And we've created a lot of good jobs. I, and I think it's a good example of industrial strategy and practice. I think the good news for our listeners that worry about climate change is that it's very clear there's a lot of work taking place on this area in Parliament through the committees, but also through the, the political parties. And I hope that gives them reassurance that we're all working as hard as we can to make sure this agenda is pushed forward as effectively as possible. We could keep going on, but as ever, um, I think we've uh, we've run out of time. So the, the the last question that we ask at the end of all of these episodes is the elevator pitch. And you have to imagine yourself in the House of Commons, You've uh, the elevator doors have opened, Rishi Sunak is in the lift, and you have one minute for your elevator pitch on energy security. What would be your number one ask of Prime Minister Sunak, uh, Greg Clark. Well, I'm going to cheat, Darren. I'm going to get two in quickly. Um, one is <laughs> to uh, to follow Churchill's uh, advice that diversity and diversity alone uh, is the key to security. We need to do that. But also as chair of the Science Committee, you know, scientific breakthroughs have a lot to offer. And there are things that we may not be able to do now, but may be able to do in a few years' time with the right research and development 
storage, for example, if we were able to store the energy that we generate from renewable intermittent sources more reliably than we can at the moment, that would solve a lot of these problems. So research and development uh, for scientific breakthrough, but diversity. And Anna McMoran, you're in the lift. What are you going to say? Okay, well, it's a no-brainer to step up on investment into renewables across the board. So onshore, offshore, solar, make it an energy efficiency as well, creating jobs, skills, and addressing the climate crisis, making the point to create our own GB energy company like EDF, like Vattenfall, making sure that bills, families' bills are cut. That's what it'll do. If we invest in green renewable energy, we're going to save families an average of a thousand pounds a year. Energy efficiency is a key to that making sure that there is huge investment in that at the same time. Great. So look, lots for the Prime Minister and the government to do, and a lot for us to do in Parliament as well. Um, Anna McMorrin, Greg Clark, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you. My thanks to all of my guests today. Next time, we'll be talking about the outcomes of COP27, the United Nations Climate Change Conference. More than 200 countries gathered at Sharm el-Sheikh to discuss progress on cutting emissions and preventing disastrous levels of global warming. We'll be asking what progress looks like and what the conference has achieved. If you want to feed back on what you've heard, please leave us a review or spread the word about our podcast, Committee Corridor. You can listen to every episode of Committee Corridor wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting us on www.parliament.uk forward slash Committee Corridor. I'm Darren Jones, Chair of the House of Commons Business Committee, and you've been listening to Committee Corridor. Thank you for listening.